0: Well, it is good to be with you guys this morning. Uh, I took my family camping for a couple of days this last week, and we, we've been talking about at Maricopa Springs, the Reformation. We've been talking about this idea in particular, Semper Reformanda, which means that the church is always in a state of reforming to be more in line with what Scripture teaches. And um, I had this wonderful opportunity, I'm sitting around the fire with my family and one of the highlights of the trip for me was just doing discipleship with my family. Uh, sitting around the fire with my kids, we read Psalms together. That's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Uh, we sang songs together. We read the creation count, uh, account in Genesis 1 as we're sitting in the woods together together. And we looked around at all that God had made and just wonder, and we spent some time praying together, going around in a circle, just giving God thanks for the things that he's made. We talked about what it means to be a Christian and this work that God has done for us and in us and changing our hearts to love him and to know him. And it was just this beautiful time together as a family. It was very precious. I was thankful we got to go away. But it, it made me think of our little reformation here at Maricopa Springs that I've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, um, that at Maricopa Springs Family Church, we are moving towards more of an expression of church that is like a family, much like we experienced sitting around the fire together. We're not undergoing a theological reformation like the Reformers did 500 years ago, and I'm going to talk about that in a minute with sola gratia but rather we're undergoing a reformation of community here at Maricopa Springs. And the goal is for our church to function more like a family. At Maricopa Springs, we want to be a church that truly is a family church, where we gather together to read and to pray, to encourage one another, to worship God together, where we're actually knitting our lives together with one another, get this, in spiritual intimacy, spiritual intimacy as we pursue Jesus together in community. Even as I wrote those words, spiritual intimacy, they brought anxiety to my heart, okay? Maybe you feel that way too because intimacy is a, it's a potentially dangerous thing, and is there something more important to who you are than your spiritual life? And yet, I think of a verse like 1 John 4, 7. It says, Beloved, Beloved, let us love one another because love comes from God. So I've talked about these new groups that we're starting. They're going to launch in January. Uh, We're calling them family churches because it's just another expression of what we're doing here at Maricopa Springs. And I want to continue to just invite you, press you, maybe even challenge you to consider being part of one of these groups, um, to come with us and put your love for God and your love for other people into practice in intimate spiritual community with other people. Uh, The reason I keep bringing this up is because they're going to launch in January on the 21st. We have a registration portal that's set up. You can register online through our website or with uh, the iPad that we have in the back of the room. In a couple of weeks, at the end of this series, we're going to do a Q&A, so if you have questions like what is this, what does this mean, how is this uh, going to be lived out, we will answer those questions for you, um, But uh, and we're never going to stop doing what we do here on a Sunday morning. I love gathering with you to hear the reading of God's Word and to sing songs together and to gather for teaching and preaching, um, but I do want to continue to challenge you, and and, and encourage you to think about what does it mean to be part of the church is it just this thing that i do on a sunday morning or is there more to it all right having said that let me pray for us and then we'll get into the word father we thank you for your church we thank you for the family of believers that you have put around us to encourage us to lift us up to love us And Lord, I pray that in the context of that community, we would become deeper lovers of you and deeper lovers of your word. Father, we think about the children that are in the back of the building and the lessons that they're going to be hearing about your love and your faithfulness. God, would you open their eyes to your goodness this morning as they hear these stories. And Lord, we thank you for the reformation that took place 500 years ago when uh, some brave people were willing to really put their lives on the line to restore the hope of the gospel in grace alone. And Father, we thank you for your grace. We pray that the truth of your grace would encourage and enliven our hearts this morning, that you would breathe life into us as we ruminate on these ideas and we study your word together. In your precious name we pray, amen. Uh, I would love for you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. That is where I'm going to be teaching out of this morning. And uh, I'll I'll let you know, it's going to be a little while before I get there. So if you want to throw the bulletin in there, that's okay. I have some groundwork to lay. Because during the month of October, we've been talking about the Protestant Reformation because uh, October 31st of this year is the 500th anniversary of of the date when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the chapel at Wittenberg. And uh, that was a momentous event. It literally changed the course of history. It was 500 years ago, sort of this month I guess you could say, that the church began to rediscover the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And over the last couple of weeks, we've learned about Martin Luther, Sola Scriptura, the sale of indulgences, Sola Fide, and the 95 Theses. If you want, you can go back on the website and listen to some of those previous messages or just take a read at some point through that blue insert in your bulletin that talks a little bit about those. And today we're going to talk about Sola Gratia, by grace alone. This is what Christians believe. We are saved by the gracious work of God. 2 Timothy says this, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Before I can get to that subject specifically, I think we need to get a little bit more history under our belt to understand the context of the Reformation, okay? Uh, One of the things that's always dangerous about a non-denominational church is that you can easily become disconnected from the church through history, and I think that that's a tragic potential consequence. So let me plug you in a little bit to the context here, okay? Between the last book of your Old Testament in the Bible, which is Malachi, and the first book of the New Testament in your Bible, which is Matthew, there was a period of about 400 years where God was silent in his conversation with his people. No books of the Bible were written. No prophets were sent on behalf of God. The world was simply waiting for the Messiah to come. And we call this the intertestamental period. Intertestamental meaning it's between the Old and New Testament. And it's just this blank space in the Bible between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now the fact of the matter is, we actually have some historical books from that period of time. They recount some of what was going on with the people of God, the Jews in particular, between roughly 450 B.C. and 0 A.D. when Jesus was born. But those books don't make it into your Bible, at least not if you're using a, uh, a Protestant or evangelical Bible, because the vast majority of Christians throughout history have looked at those books and said, they're good for historical reasons, but they are not the inspired Word of God. In other words, as books, do they give us some insight into history? Yes. But are they books that were written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God? Are they Scripture, and should they inform our theology? Protestants or evangelicals answer that question by saying no. Okay, yet in spite of the fact that you can go back through church history all the way to the earliest accounts and find that early Jewish and Christian writers rejected these books as scripture. They did not include them in their Bibles. The Catholic Church eventually decided to include them in the canon of scripture, in the Bible. And so the Catholic Bible has whole chunks of scripture in the middle of it that is more than likely missing from yours. We call those books the Apocrypha, and Protestants, again, evangelical Christians, we reject these books as scripture. The reason why this is important, okay, is because in the book of 2 Maccabees, which is in the Apocrypha, we find what I think is kind of a strange story that has influenced the Catholic Church in its theology uh, for centuries. In fact, the sale of indulgences can be traced back to this particular passage The sale of indulgences, if I can remind you, was this despicable practice where the church was actually selling the forgiveness of sins for money, and it traces its origins back to this Catholic interpretation of this passage of Scripture, or passage, I should say, in the Apocrypha in 2 Maccabees. Let me summarize it for you, okay? In 2 Maccabees, there's this story where the Jews go to war, and a group of them die in battle against their enemies, And when their fellow Jews go to recover their bodies from the battlefield, they find around their necks these necklace amulets that are idols to a false god. This is a grievous act of sin in the Old Testament, idolatry, the worst kind of sin according to the Old Testament law. If you know your Ten Commandments, the first is you shall have no other gods before me. So, distraught over the sin of his fellow Jews, this leader, his name is Judas Maccabees, commands that those who are still alive offer prayers and sacrifices for the dead, for those that they have found, to forgive them for their sins. Listen to this. This is the text of 2 Maccabees. It says, Therefore, Judas made atonement for the dead so that they might be delivered from their sin. Now, I think, if you're a careful student of the Bible, that that quote alone should be an indicator to you that these books do not belong in the Bible because Hebrews 10.4 says this, "'For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Animal sacrifices don't satisfy God to atone for sin.'" Yet through the centuries as the Catholic Church was forming its doctrine, it came to believe that this passage of the Apocrypha was teaching that after, uh, after believers died, they still needed to atone for their sins before God. And this is in part where the doctrine of purgatory comes from. Where after death, the pious believers, saints, good Christian men and women, if you will, are sent to a place where over the course of years or even decades, they slowly atone for the rest of the sins that they committed through penance and through suffering before they get to enter into glory in heaven. In other words, Christians go to purgatory to work off the debt of sin that they still owe to God. It's not hell. Hell is where rebellious sinners are sent, people who refuse to bow the knee before Jesus and worship Him as Lord. And it's not heaven either where believers would go if their sins were completely atoned for. Rather, listen, purgatory is a place where believers, according to the Catholic Church, go to finish the work of atonement that Jesus only started. A work which we believe is already finished, right? Jesus declared on the cross in one of His final breaths, What did he say? It is finished. The work is done. Okay, but not only did this non-biblical passage of 2 Maccabees lead to the doctrine of purgatory, it also came to be used to defend the idea that in heaven there is a storehouse of merit available to the people of God that can be used for them to tap into to help them in their redemption. These are good works that other people have done that are stored up in heaven so that sinners like you and I can have access to them when we come up short in our good works, okay? Let me try and illustrate this to explain it. Let's just say your sins add up to 20. I'm just making the numbers up, but bear with me. Mine would be bigger than that, I confess. But Let's just say yours add up to 20, your sins. Your merits only add up to 15. Your good works only add up to 15. You have a deficit of five points that you still owe to God. So you would therefore go to purgatory for years or decades, as long as it took you, to work off those last five points of sin so that your good works could at least equal your sinful works. But let's say your mother Teresa, okay, Let's just say she only had 10 when it comes to sin. She, she only got to the level of 10 in her sins. But her good works, her merits, because we all know that she was like the best of the best, right? Her merits added up to 50. Well, according to the Catholic Church, she has an excess of 40 merits that go into this cloud of merits that are available to the church. They're stored in this storehouse of good deeds in heaven. And the Catholic Church then, or I should say more specifically the Pope, could borrow the merits from that storehouse and apply them to souls in purgatory to get them released into paradise more quickly. This is not salvation by grace alone that the Bible teaches. It's a works-based salvation created by Man who loves to think of himself far more highly than he ought to, as if we've done any good works in the eyes of God that merit his kindness towards us. So you have to understand, in Luther's day, there was actually this complex and completely falsified spiritual economy whereby those of us who weren't spiritual enough to get into heaven on our own merits could borrow the merits, the good works of other people, those who were super spiritual, in order to sort of speed up our process of getting to heaven. Now, I hope you can see how quickly this doctrine could go bad. It put an almost limitless amount of spiritual power at the hands of the Pope. And yet, I have to point out again, none of this is hinted at in your Bible It's simply the fiction of a church gone wrong over centuries, tragically. And this is where indulgences enter back into the picture. Hang with me. If the Pope has access to this storehouse of merit, which he can apply to any soul he chooses at will, then why not sell those merits for a little bit of cash and everybody wins, right? The church gets its much-needed money for its building projects, And souls in purgatory get the good works they need to get them to heaven a little bit more quickly. And of course, the power of the Pope also gets greater if he can use those merits, think about this, to actually atone for the sins of people who are already dead. It's as if the Pope himself then has power over life and death. And actually, in his 95 Theses, Martin Luther speaks specifically to this idea in Numbers 82 through 84. Luther asks a very reasonable question. He says, why, if the Pope has access to these merits and can save any soul he wants in purgatory by tapping into them, and if the Pope really cares about people, then why doesn't the Pope just break open the storehouse of merits available and lavish them on all of the souls in purgatory for free in order to get everybody into heaven as quickly as possible. If he could do it, and he cares about people, why would he sell it? Do you see, if the Pope is as good and kind and loving as he claims, and he has the power to free souls from suffering in purgatory, why not wave his magic wand empty the merits, and set all the souls free. Do you see the problem? Isn't that what a loving Christian pope would do if such power were truly at his disposal rather than profiteering and selling those merits? Okay, so as Protestants, as evangelicals, we reject purgatory. We reject the idea that the Apocrypha is the inspired word of God. And we reject the idea that there is a storehouse of merits Earned by the saints who have come before us that we can have access to. And listen, why do we reject that idea? Because through the grace of God, Jesus Christ has already made a vastly superior storehouse of forgiveness available to us, available to anyone who would come to Him and accept His atoning sacrifice. What could we possibly add to what Christ has done? As good as Mother Teresa was, what could she possibly add to what Jesus already did on the cross? And in truth, this view of a storehouse of merits, this view of purgatory, this view that Christians must still atone for their sin after death, that's an abominable insult to the cross of Christ, isn't it? Which is already completely provided for your redemption from start to finish. If we still had work to do, then what that means is that the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was meaningless. It spits in the face of God, who gave so much. Not to just start us out on the path of salvation, but to start and finish all of the work of salvation for sinners. The Apostle Paul, he says this very thing, Galatians 2, verse 21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, if man, through his own merits and good works, could satisfy the righteous requirements of God, then why in the world did Jesus suffer so much and die so horrifically? His death was utterly wasteful and superfluous if we could do it on our own. If the Pope could just dish out saving merits from some heavenly storehouse at will, then what need do we have of Jesus at all? Now, long before Luther had the skill to voice these things in his writing, he knew this in his gut. You heard Brian Arnold talk about this a little bit last week. I think it's worth reiterating. Martin Luther said later in life, if there was ever a monk who could be saved by monkery, it was I. In other words, Martin Luther was claiming that if good works were sufficient for salvation, then certainly he, Martin Luther, would have achieved salvation. He would have had a clear conscience before God. But his efforts to find salvation through good works, good deeds, even repentance, drove his mentor, Johann von Stoppitz, crazy. Luther, again, as Brian mentioned last week, Luther would spend hours in the confessional. He would put you to shame meticulously confessing every sin that he could possibly think of only to leave and, and he would feel this deep anxiety that maybe he had missed something. And so he would run back into the confessional to think more clearly if he had passed over any sin that he should confess because he knew that he needed to achieve personal righteousness before God. And if he failed, he would find himself under the judgment of God. He was terrified that his own righteousness would never measure up to the requirements of God. And I would say he was absolutely right to feel that fear. Maybe you too have felt that anxiety. How do I know if I've been good enough? Luther was a tortured soul because of that question before he stumbled upon the grace of God as it's proclaimed in Scripture. He even went so far as to take a pilgrimage to Rome, believing that going through all the rituals there in Rome would bring relief to his conscience, and yet he was still tortured. Even after his pilgrimage, he had no peace with God. Okay, the point of all of this is that Luther didn't find salvation or peace for his soul through merits, through his own good works. Luther didn't find confidence before the Lord or hope through religious deeds, through holy pilgrimages. Luther didn't find relief for his tortured soul through meticulous confession or a worldly fear of sin and death. All of those things, do you know what they succeeded in doing for Luther? They only awakened in him a disturbing sense of his own guilt before a perfect Creator. What finally gave Luther rest for his soul was the precious Word of God, where Luther learned that salvation is a gracious gift that God gives freely to those who humble themselves before Him. It was the kindness, the kindness of God, like we heard about in Psalm 145, that gave Luther peace. It was grace that finally gave him rest before a fearsome and holy God whose righteousness was too perfect to approach. Until Luther understood the gospel rightly, he found the Christian faith to be a horribly heavy burden that brought him a sense of ruination in his soul, not joy or peace or contentment. So then, what is the gospel rightly understood? Turn with me now to Ephesians 2. And I want to read Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. I'd love for you to read along. If you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. If yours has the Apocrypha in it, you can still read that. I mean, you can still read the Bible. I would encourage you to understand that that's not Scripture. Or take one of ours that doesn't have it. We would love to give you a a gift and let you have a Bible. It says this in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk with them. With the rest of our time, I just want to point out four things that I think we find in this text, okay? I'll give you the heads up. I think first we find our problem. Next, we find God's motivation for solving our problem. Then we find the solution He offers and the reward that we receive. So let me start with the problem. Why could Martin Luther find no peace in his heart, in his relationship to God, in spite of all of his good works? How come all of his good works, all of his excellent monkery never made him feel better before a holy God? Well, Ephesians 2.1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I think that a lot of times as Christians, we don't give enough credit, enough weight to this word dead, dead. Have you ever seen the movie Princess Bride? I get a kick out of that movie. I think it's funny. Uh, There's a scene in that movie where the hero dies, essentially, and uh, his friends are desperate to have him back, and so they drag him to the local medicine man, and they ask for the medicine man to sort of evaluate their friend. And he goes, you know what, actually, I've got good news for you. Your friend is not completely dead. He's only mostly dead. And his friends are are shocked to find out that there's a category for mostly dead versus completely dead. Like you might also be shocked. I, I was always under the impression that you are either dead or not dead, okay? So do you know the difference between dead, completely dead, and mostly dead? Do you know the difference? When you're mostly dead, you're alive. When you're completely dead, you're dead. Now, the Bible never talks about sinful humans as if they are mostly dead, as if they just need a little bit of help or some medication to get better. The Bible says that the problem with you and I is not that we are mostly dead or sort of dead or kind of dead or a little bit dead. Humans in their sin are as dead as a doornail. We are spiritual corpses apart from Christ. We are actually lifeless because of sin. Think about that for a second. Lifeless because of sin. And because of our death and our inability to raise ourselves or stand before a holy God, we are under the wrath and judgment of God. So look, please hear me loud and clear. If you are far from God, if you are living life apart from Jesus Christ, you don't just need a little bit of help. You don't just need a boost of church or a little dose of morality. You are dead. You are actually lifeless, even as you sit here and breathe. Now, I've never heard of an ER doctor who, when their patient flatlines on the table, says to the nurses, don't worry, just wheel him outside, and in a little bit he'll get up and he'll help himself to some new life. Because dead people don't help themselves. At all. Now, if you're spiritually dead, don't despair. My goal is not to discourage you. I want to offer you good news. The peace that Martin Luther stumbled upon. I want to point you towards the hope that he found in Jesus Christ, the God of Scripture, who is our salvation, our Redeemer. There is a solution to the problem that you are completely dead and not mostly dead. But before we get to the solution to the problem, I want to point point you to the character of God so that you can see what motivated God to behave this way towards us. Look at verses 4 through 7. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even though we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Here we see the motivation behind God's kindness towards humanity even as we were dead in our sins. Does this passage teach that God was motivated by the natural goodness of man? Does it teach that God was motivated because we sort of deserved His kindness? Does it tell us that God behaved this way because He was obligated to do so or because it was necessary for Him to do so? Absolutely not. It tells us about our God. He is rich in mercy. He loves with a great love. He is motivated by His own grace and His own kindness. And all of those attributes of His character bring God great glory in saving sinners from spiritual death. God saves sinners because He desires to show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. You need to understand the richness of this God who we worship. He has not acted in kindness towards you for your sake. He's acted in kindness towards you for His sake, for His glory, for the fame of His own great name. He has saved sinners from every corner of creation, so that the name of Jesus might be lifted high above every other name. And this is because the mercy and kindness and love and grace that we know in God flow from God having their origin in Him. It is not because you deserve it. It is because it is who He is. Now we get to the crux of what the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate, the solution. Look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. So God saves sinners through his grace and he gives us that grace as a gift The Apostle Paul wants us to understand very clearly here, this is not your doing. This is not my doing. And it's so important that you understand this tiny detail. You can do absolutely nothing to earn your salvation. You can do absolutely nothing to contribute to your salvation. God has already done it all. And this is the idea that the Reformers fought so hard to establish in the idea, sola gratia, by grace alone. Our God is so good and so kind and so gracious. He does not get us most of the way to our salvation. He doesn't get us some of the way to our salvation. He takes us from start to finish without any help from us whatsoever. And on the day that we stand before God in judgment, not a single person will say to him, you know what, God, thanks for backing me up down there. Really appreciate that. You were a great wingman. Thanks for that little bit of mercy that just pushed me that last little bit over the finish line so that I made it here. Thanks for supporting me in all of my efforts to please you. I'm really glad that by the skin of my teeth I made it. Nobody will say such things. Nobody even though here on earth, that's how people think. I mean, ask people, what do you think it takes for you to be right with God? And more often than not, they will tell you, well, just that I do more good than bad. Man, good luck with that. Like Luther, how will you ever have peace in your soul? All of us, when we stand before the Lord, will, will fall on our faces, those of us who are saved, and we will praise and adore our God who has bestowed on us a gift so precious that coming to know it more through all of eternity, we will never fully understand its greatness. God saves sinners through the gift of His grace, and it has to be this way. Because if we were responsible for even one-tenth of one percent, then we could sit at the table of God our Father with pride, admonishing ourselves for how far we had come boasting of even the smallest measure of contribution and bringing shame upon the cross of Christ who died for nothing if we could do it apart from Him. If we earn any of it, then it's no longer a gift. It's our right. And if it's our right, then it's no longer grace. The Reformers from 500 years ago recognized what a wonderful gift grace is, and they wanted to pull pride from the equation so that man would be low before God and so that God would be seen as the gracious, loving, kind, merciful, good God He is, owing nothing to the creature that He made from the dust, and yet giving everything, His own life, that that creature that He made might be saved. God, who owed man nothing, gave man life through the gift of his own death. And notice, too, that Paul speaks about this gift of grace in past tense. You have been saved. It's already accomplished. It means that you are already there. Those of us who have faith have already received the gift of salvation. We're not waiting for the day when it will appear. We're not hoping for it. We're not sort of cringing, expecting that maybe we made it or maybe we didn't. We are living in that salvation here and now already. Don't you see, once Martin Luther understood the gift of grace, all of the fear that he had of God dissipated. Because in a moment, he knew that his salvation had already been accomplished when Christ declared, it is finished on the cross. The gift had already been delivered, and he was free from the consequences of sin and death. Oh, what a relief to his soul that moment was. Now, lest we still be confused about how grace works, Paul finishes Ephesians with verse 10 And he says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. See, what was really at stake in the Reformation was the order of events. Timothy Keller summarizes it like this. I love it. it. It is faith alone that saves, but the faith that saves is never alone. The reformers were not suggesting that Christians should not do good works. I encourage you, do good works in the name of Jesus. The reformers were only suggesting that the good works that we do flow out of the good work that Christ has already done. If we say that our good works lead to salvation, then we make God a debtor to man. And salvation is not a gift, then, it is a right. And we who are dead in our sins, we have no right before a perfect God, before the living God. But if we say that we're saved by grace, which is the gift of God, then we are free to let Jesus produce in us the very righteousness of God that brings glory to God in the good works that we do that He gave for us to do. And yet far too many people, they have this backwards, They think that it's good works that merit salvation before God. They think that their good works make them worthy of God. But the Bible and the Reformers teaches that God saves us through His grace, and then God works in us to do good works. And that little difference, my friends, that little difference is a massive chasm between heaven and hell. Please understand, no one in hell will cry out, I deserve better than this. And no one in heaven will say, I got what I deserved. For by grace we've been saved through faith, and this is not our own doing, it is the gift of God. Let me close by just illustrating this for you. I think sometimes the best way to see the grace of God is through the behavior of children. If you have children, maybe you've seen these flashes of grace. A few weeks ago, my oldest son, Aiden, was playing upstairs with with his younger brother, Soren, and I could hear them. I was downstairs in the living room reading, and I could hear them fighting, and Aiden was just being a jerk. Like, there's no two ways around it. They were playing some game that took imagination, and Aiden was just determining all the rules and not letting Soren have any uh, part in it and uh, frustrating his younger brother, Soren, until uh, Soren began to cry. And he came halfway down the stairs, and he just sat on the stairs, and I could hear him just weeping for like 20 minutes. And again, Aiden was just being a jerk, but I I decided to just let it play out instead of get involved. And uh, when Soren came to me, I said, you know what, buddy, he's being mean to you, but um, if you don't want to play the game that he wants to play, then just go play your own game. Make up your own rules. That, again, didn't satisfy Soren, so he sat on the stairs and wept for like 20 minutes. I'm not kidding you, 20 minutes. And then after 20 minutes, he abruptly just got up, he ran into my office, he grabbed some paper, he got the crayons, he sat down at the table, and he began furiously coloring. And he sticks out his tongue when he's really concentrating. And I just kept reading. And, And I just read... 20 minutes more, and I'm telling you, Soren does not have like a 20-minute attention span, but he sat there for 20 minutes coloring, vigorously working on this drawing. And after 20 minutes or so, I I got curious. My curiosity just overcame me, and I looked up and I said to him, Soren, what are you doing, buddy? And he didn't even look up from his work. He just continued coloring, and he just said, I'm making Aiden a card to tell him how much I love him. And of course, every analogy breaks down when you press it enough, but isn't there a picture of divine grace there in that action? We mistreat God. We sin against Him. We rebel in evil so that even our good deeds are often works of egotism and pride and self-centered vainglory. We behave like jerks towards God, but God being rich in mercy, labors with divine intensity to send us the greatest love letter that the world has ever known, his own son, to proclaim grace and love and forgiveness. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. I mean, actually, after Soren said that, I wanted to go upstairs and just scream at Aiden. It made the jerkiness of his behavior even more extravagant, didn't it? And yet God gave us grace in Christ Jesus so that we might be accepted and redeemed and saved. Grace is the kindness of God, which God has given to you for his own sake, so that you might pass from being completely dead to being full of life. And it has nothing to do with you at all except you need receive it by faith. It is the work of God who through Christ Jesus expressed his enduring love for sinners that we might be called children of God. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for grace. We thank you for children who so often exemplify grace. We thank you for your Son, who gave us the greatest picture of grace, who through his own death, through his own sacrifice, atoned for sins. Lord, we thank you that it's not by the sacrifice of animals that our sins are atoned for, but only through the blood of your precious Son. We thank you for this idea that it's by grace that we are saved so that we don't have to live lives of anxious worry, wondering if we have achieved enough righteousness on our own to stand before You. We thank You that when we enter Your eternal kingdom, none of us will claim that we deserved the grace that we've been given. We thank You for all of Your kindness, for this wonderful gift that You have given us. And Lord, I pray that You would help us to live in that grace, not seeking to appease You through our own good deeds, but doing good deeds out of the joyful gift that we have been given in kindness, in mercy. Lord, we bless you. What can we say? What what words could we possibly offer to give you enough praise and thanksgiving for this gift that you've given us? In spite of that fact, Lord, we do turn our hearts to you in worship, and we give you thanks for the gift that you've given us in your Son, Jesus. Amen.